0: Welcome back to South African Border Wars with me, your host, Des Latham. This is episode 43 and we're into 1980. Last episode, we met Tani Pompi Pondavestesen and touched on growing signs of plan action through late 1979. 1980 was going to be a momentous year in border war history. And from now on, the combat ramps up along with the casualties on all sides. Up until now, the SADF had been winging it, using a pastiche of military techniques backed up by a somewhat haphazard political agenda. To outsiders, it appeared that the National Party was organized and focused, but the real situation inside was far more chaotic. Then P.W. Boerter took over from B.J. Foster, and the hawks in the party won out in 1980. Not that Foster appeared soft and gentle to outsiders, but in terms of the overall political strategy he'd been advocating, a negotiated settlement from the immediate position while Boito preferred a future negotiated settlement from a future position of military strength. What he was going to hopelessly underestimate was the melting ice blocks of the Cold War, as we all know. But that's historical hindsight. It's easy to be twenty-twenty after the fact. Back in 1980, when he took over the helm as Prime Minister, Russia and America were locked in a titanic struggle across planet Earth. It was communism versus capitalism, and you had to pick a side. The U.S. didn't like apartheid. It was creating internal political divisions in America, and eventually even the capitalists there, the corporate and other bondholders, would force investors out of South Africa. And yet, the U.S. liked Russia even less. South Africa turned into a kind of island of white supremacy and a continent of black post-colonial power. A sea of political change was washing up against this island as it began to be eroded from both within and without by those demanding black voting rights. In South West Africa, hardcore apartheid had already ended, at least in the larger cities, which is a fact not readily understood by former SADF vets who fought there. As an SADF instructor in 1982, for example, I sat at a Vintok Hotel bar with German and Afrikaans-speaking Namibians talking politics, and their black-and-coloured wives and partners sat alongside, sipping cocktails. Southwest Africa had already abolished the dreaded blacks-only pass law system in 1975, along with the job reservation system of whites first and the hated laws forbidding mixed marriages and sex across the colour line. By 1978, the principle of equal pay for equal work had been accepted. Bintook bars were awash with mixed-race couples enjoying life. This led to a kind of exaggerated contradiction, where northern Southwest Africa seemed suspended in a kind of time warp in their separate time capsule, while to the South people kind of got on with a modernizing state. Even the National Party knew of this because at the time, and in a top-secret assessment signed by Director General of National Intelligence, Dr. Neil Barnard, the Pretoria government concluded that white Southwest Africans had to be convinced they cannot demand the same as the whites in the RSA. Back home they could expect a party to work for them, but not in SWA. And that they had to make compromises while the big chasm between white and black aspirations had to be taken into account in the formation of what Pretoria was calling a united front. That implies something of significance was facing this group that needed a united front, and of course That thing of significance was something called swapu. Lurking at the back of Dr Barnard's mind was the fact there is no military solution to any conflict in the world. There is only a political solution. A war is a tool used to shape a peace, and that peace has the characteristics of those who are victorious in that war. For the SADF, the use of only white troops was obviously no longer viable. Black, coloured and Indian South Africans were now being trained in various sectors of the military. In nineteen seventy five, the South African Cape Corps became a combat unit, and one hundred and ninety men ended up in the operational area by year end. The Navy followed suit particularly with colored and Indian intakes. Three two battalions ex FNLA fighters were joined by black soldiers shortly afterwards, then three one battalion where sand trackers dominated, one oh one battalion of Ovumbo speakers, two oh one battalion of East Caprivians. 202 Battalion from Okavango, 203 Battalion from West Caprivi, and 911 Battalion, which was ethnically mixed. At the same time, the police counterinsurgency unit, which would end its life so inauspiciously under a cloud of torture and abuse, Kufut saw many blacks join over the next few years. It was established in 1979, and thanks to Ria for suggesting a few things with regard to this police unit. So the various black units grew from now on. By 1985, they would make up more than 50% of the total armed forces and eventually more than 90% of the 30,000 men who'd make up the S.W.A. territorial force were black. P.W. Botha was now in charge back in South Africa. He was Prime Minister and he viewed the Soviet Union as the greatest threat in the region, more so than the Chinese who were funding Zimbabwean anti-colonial struggles. Remember, this was before the Constitution was changed to make Botha a president. Leonard Brezhnev had publicly stated in 1977 that the USSR was interested in both the treasure of oil in the Middle East and the mineral wealth of Central and Southern Africa. I've explained how the Congo plutonium was in demand along with copper, cobalt, iron and other minerals. And of course, the gold of South Africa. Boota's Minister of Defense, Magnus Malan, regularly reminded journalists of Brezhnev's comments. Boota told Parliament repeatedly and starting soon after he was installed as Prime Minister, that the Kremlin sought to gain a foothold in Africa by destabilizing the region. At the same time, in a political irony, newly installed independent African nations were making the same allegations about Washington. Russian and American military intelligence also believed that Swapo would eventually grind the SADF down over the coming years, and both were determined to support their allies in Africa. The other united front, had launched in southern Africa and was going to morph shortly to include Zimbabwe, but already included Zambia, Botswana, and Mozambique. How long would South Africa last? In the heady days of 1980, it seemed not long at all, at least according to the Organization of African Unity, which thought Pretoria would be defeated within 10 years, possibly 5. The world was out to get Pretoria, at least according to the nationalists, and they fostered a feeling inside the country of self-righteous indignation. And yet, they also knew that Southwest Africa's steady march towards becoming Namibia was inevitable. In 1977, Foreign Affairs Minister Puk Boita told then Rhodesian Prime Minister Ian Smith that, in so many words, during a visit to Salisbury, South Africa was hoping that a group of politicians aligned to anyone but Swapo would manage to win a majority in any future Namibian election. This, of course, completely underestimated the will of the majority of Namibians who were tired of a minority controlling their economy, whatever advantages they received from being a vassal state of South Africa. As a troopy, I personally was highly aware in 1981 that Swapo were preferred by the inhabitants, whatever propaganda was being fed at the time, and wrote that down in my diary. As I've said, the border war was an attempt to win time, so that Swapo could be weakened before any election. As time went on, and as we're going to see, it was actually an opposite effect. Curiously, the hardliners, a hundred years before in the Boer War, had thought that the same thing could take place when taking on the British. Keep fighting and eventually they'll break. Well, they didn't. And neither did so What was happening was not military strategy. It was security strategy. Keep the enemy at bay long enough and then muddle through to some kind of future negotiated solution. The elephant in the room, of course was South Africa's own internal fight against the ANC and PAC This clouded all their decisions. General Yanni Heldenhuis, the commander of SADF forces in Southwest, at this point was also very clear about the strategic motives. He was always an ideologue first, and in his book, At the Front, he points out that time is neutral, it favours no one. Only those who use time optimally succeed, and South Africa would extend the change of government in Namibia as long as possible. Soviet Russia, they believed, would run out of steam in Angola, then withdraw. They did run out of steam, of course, by 1989, and the Berlin Wall fell and the USSR disintegrated. However, by then, the South African apartheid system had run out of even more steam as Swiss banks refused to roll over interest on their debt, and the Americans had had enough of apartheid, and investment agencies began pulling their cash out of the country in wads. Back to the border war. Pretoria spoke of the communist threat, sidestepping mention of apartheid. The war was all about stopping the Reds, not the Blacks. It was a fight against communist dictatorship. The good guys, said the nationalists, and epitomized by foreign minister, put his quirky moustache and raised bushy eyebrows. A multi-party democracy facing off against the Cubans, Russians and Eastern Europeans. Those evil promoters of landmines, bombs and shopping centres and murdered farmers. To say this was schizophrenic is putting it mildly. A country that had barred its own black majority from voting, except inside their insidious little rural backwaters called Bantistans, claiming Swapo were nasty and horrible, turned into stand-up comedian ammunition worldwide. However, it was no laughing matter. Swapo Sam Nioma had said publicly that he thought voting was overrated, and wanted an MPLA-style military solution for Namibia. Revolutionaries don't like sharing their little red berets. Just look at our current guerrilla-chic movement of South Africa. The EFF for an example of that. And now something was on the move north of the border that shook the nationalists. The Zimbabwe-Rhodesia negotiations. In Mozambique, things had begun to change in the mid-70s, where South Africa accepted Frelimo rule begrudgingly because Pretoria knew it could wield a very different weapon against Maputo. Economics Mozambique was integrated in South Africa's economic power, unlike Angola. Maputo was dependent on South African expertise as the port city sought to unshackle itself from the power of the apartheid-run finance economy. A large portion of Mozambique's working population were migrant workers who crossed in and out of South Africa. It was only after White Rhodesia fell in 1980 and the ANC started increasing incursions from Mozambique that South Africa began to support Renamo openly. By 1984, South Africa forced Mozambique into a non-aggression pact, whereas Angola was a different kettle of fish entirely. Angola ran its own railway, had oil and virtually no migrant workers in South Africa or Southwest Africa, and could afford to thumb their noses at the Boers. So in February 1980, in the Triangle of Death, that zone between Grootfontein, Tzumib and Otavi, the farmers were gearing up for what was going to be an escalation of the war. Danny Pompey Van de Vestesen was going to be shaken once more by reports of an attack on a farm close by. In February 1980, a few squads of planned guerrillas crossed the cut line with one thing on their mind, to kill a few white civilians. It was a new strategy to drive the farmers off the land, but it had the opposite effect. So, this stick targeted the farm La Rochelle inside of Bumberland first, which was owned by Kali Dupria and his wife Connie but the farmer spotted the attackers and opened fire on them with his hunting rifle, which came with a telescopic sight, killing three. The two others fled. There were few incidents again for a week. Then, on the 22nd of February, the Dressel family were up and about in the morning, aware that something was amiss. First, their dogs began barking constantly. Then they tried the landline, but the telephone was dead. They knew that it was likely they were about to come under attack. Their farm, called Harabib was 43 kilometers south of Grootfontein and help was hours away. Ibarat Dressel made the fatal mistake of opening his front door to find out what was going on and was shot dead in the hail of AK-47 bullets. His 16-year-old daughter Sonja had figured out that there were five men who had climbed over their fence and managed to grab her father's G3 automatic rifle. She had a few magazines of ammunition and then began to run from window to window, firing constantly. The insurgents thought that there were more people in the house, and their attack wavered. Minutes later the AK forty sevens fell silent, and Sonya sat in the house awaiting another strike, shaking. More minutes ticked by and then an hour. Finally, an SADF response team showed up, and follow up investigations two Swapper soldiers were found dead nearby. Three others had fled. Sonya Dressel, the sixteen year old, had managed to fight off a combat trained group of guerrilla fighters. The three others were tracked down and killed in follow-up operations. Sonia received a medal for bravery from the SA police, while both she and Kali Dupria, the hunting rifle, crack shot, were paid 4,000 and 6,000 rand respectively, 2,000 per swapper killed. At the time, the story circulated and gave locals something to cheer, but if you think about it, a young teen having to shoot down attackers in her own house was indicative of just how the triangle of death was living up to its name. Things were definitely going to get worse because soon afterwards, the SADF intelligence received troubling news. 800 Swapo guerrillas were going to be moved from Zambia to the Western Angolan Front, the Kuneni province. Waiting for them was 3-2 Battalion, the semi-secret group of FNLA soldiers now bolstered by more black fighters from inside Southwest. Their Commandant Dion Ferreira was nicknamed the Falcon and many, many stories abound about his capacity to wage war. During 1979, which was his first year in command, global interest in the Angolan War grew even as the Soviets invaded Afghanistan. In fact, even more so. Russia had regarded their success in supporting the MPLA in Angola as a leading case for getting involved in other people's wars and made the fatal mistake of thinking Afghanistan would be a pushover. It wouldn't be the last. FAPLA began to build a new stronghold at Kaunda despite 3-2's attentions in southern Angola. Next door in Rhodesia, the Lancaster House Agreement was finally signed in December 1979 and one-man-one-vote majority rule was established with an election planned within weeks. In Pretoria, P.W. Botha and the Minister of Defence, Magnus Malan, were fully aware that ZANU-PF, led by Robert Mugabe, was likely to win the election after independence. The elections were set for 14th of February 1980, Valentine's Day. Meanwhile, the SADF had already launched an attack on Swapa that was designed to inflict maximum casualties. It was known as Operation Drihuk Triangle and followed weeks of radio interceptions indicating that Swapo was stockpiling weapons and supplies for a possible attack on Yenhana or Ulundu up against the Angolan border. This was going to be one of the most intense ops involving 3 2 Battalion, with firefights taking place daily. And confrontations with large groups of SWAPO companies. First, SAD of troops were mobilized from Ilundu in something called Operation Hammer, where they swept the area north of their base and two kilometers over the cutline into Angola. At the same time, three two battalion was assigned to the area north of Beacon Twenty One. As I mentioned earlier, Ferreira was a soldiers soldier taking command directly of action in the field. And led echo and foxtrot companies as well as two reconnaissance teams into angola on the 4th of february 1980. echo was deployed over a 10 kilometer area east of Chide, which is southeast of anjiba foxtrot was deployed further south and the two recce teams were airlifted by a chopper 14 kilometers to the northeast as they hit the ground jumping from the puma swapo guerrillas spotted them and opened fire the puma pilot reported fresh vehicle tracks to the north of the drop zone and the Rekis moved into position to try and ambush whomever was driving around. Echo Company 1st and 4th platoons ran into Swapo northeast of Namakunde, which is on the main road south from Manjiba, and in the firefight killed two guerrillas. By the 6th of February, the platoons found an empty base nearby, and that evening they ran into more Swapo, who had taken shelter in a village. There were too many civilians around to conduct proper operations, but in the short firefight, a single Swapo soldier was killed. And about the same time that day, a Land Rover passed the Reiki position, driven by what looked like a Cuban or a Russian. As the Reikis moved towards the road, five Swapo soldiers could be seen through the bush and three were shot down. Two others escaped. For some reason, the man in the Land Rover headed back along the same road an hour and a half later and was killed instantly when the Reikis fired an RPG-7 into the vehicle and it exploded. The co-driver managed to escape, running off into the bush, but he died of his injuries that night and was found lying nearby. Right now, 3-2 battalion's companies were about to head into a far more challenging situation. The next day, the 7th of February, Foxtrot Company's 1st platoon was attacked by around 40 Swapo soldiers, and they were pinned down, eventually calling for gunship support. Then Swapo melted away. At 7 that night, Echo Company decided it was time to fill the water bottles and headed to China Uixe, a watering hole, only to run into another swapper group. In the gunfight, one died and the rest of the group escaped. The next morning, there were a number of contacts starting with an explosion 16 kilometers northeast of Chide. Two swapper guerrillas had triggered an automatic ambush laid with anti-personnel mines and both died. Twenty-five swapper soldiers appeared shortly afterwards, possibly reacting to the explosion, and exchanged fire with the reconnaissance teams. Then, a four-man recce team bumped into a group of Swapo on the road east of Chide, and the South Africans were hopelessly outnumbered. Gunships were called in once more and shot up the Swapo group, killing three. And just before two that same afternoon on the 8th of February, the recce team called Whiskey Romeo were in a layup on a road 18 kilometres north of Chide when they realized the enemy was moving close by. Gunships were called in once more, and Lieutenant Willem Ratta of the Rekis decided to investigate further, then found a group of 40 Swapo. An intense gun battle developed with the Alouette gunship lending a hand, and eventually 13 Swapo were killed. The Rekis took one wounded. Rifleman J. Antonio was hit and evacuated, along with three Swapo prisoners. The three were in a mood to talk. They explained that Swapo's 150-strong detachment headquarters was at Onesheche, 16 kilometres north of Chida and east of Anjiba. While this may have been false information, intelligence believed they were telling the truth, and from the 9th of February onwards, the SADF only operated at company strength. Fortunately so, because during one of the sweeps, Echo Company found the tracks of a 75 millimetre recoilless gun leading south from China Henge on the 10th of February. Then on the 11th of February, Foxtrot Company's 3rd platoon made contact with a group of 40 Swapo. 12 kilometers southeast of Chide. Gunships swooped in once more and two swapper were killed during that attack. The rest broke into smaller groups and headed north. It was time to mine the main road from Chide to Namakunde and then all companies in the field were warned they probably need to remain inside Angola for another 10 days. It was a short while later that they received the heartening news that other attacks were shelved and the units withdrew south led by the Rekis. They noticed one strange anomaly. As they travelled, a number of young men were seen moving in the area, which was unusual, as most of the men who lived in that area had long since left to join Swapo. However, these men were unarmed, and they were left alone, but it was suspicious, to say the least. While the ops went well, things were not looking good for the SDF overall. In February 1980, 42 landmines had been registered in Ovumberland, a new record. Not only that, but there was... Valid intelligence report that the Russians were pressurizing Swapa to intensify the war, and the eight hundred planned fighters moved westward from Zambia was proof of Moscow's growing frustration. Then attempts were made to infiltrate Kaukaland further west, which had never happened, and the hydroelectric works at Rokana were attacked. That was a blow to the SADF and Southwest African Territorial Force as it supplied power to northern Southwest Africa. Swapo was clearly far from a beaten enemy. Whatever. Yanni Helnes had said, as we heard last episode. The guerrilla movement was ready for a large-scale offensive, but the SADF wasn't sure where and when. Furthermore, Pretoria's strategic position weakened. To the north, Robert Mugabe and Joshua Nkomo's Patriotic Front won the overwhelming majority in the new Zimbabwe elections of February, and that meant a valuable ally was gone. It also meant the international focus shifted to southwest Africa now that the Rhodesian Bush War was over. Back in National Party headquarters, there was much soul-searching. Why had the Rhodesians capitulated so quickly? The war hawks in the Cabinet took centre stage. They believed it was because the Rhodesians hadn't launched cross-border raids early enough, nor did they do it effectively. At least, that was the view communicated by Magnus Malan. This implied the South Africans obviously had to launch a series of cross-border raids. If their premise was correct, They'd need to conduct a major offensive into Angola as soon as possible. And as we're going to hear in the next episode, that was the impetus for Operation Skeptic, Aka Smokeshell. Thanks to various listeners, including Dion, who has sent me a number of really informative, unique photographs from his time in Southwest, before he ended up heading onto other things further afield. They say a picture tells a thousand words, and Dion's images are worth millions, so thanks. And Andy, whose brothers Milo and Sandy spent time in the SADF and says the podcasts are helping him fill gaps as he goes about his life in Colorado, USA. Thanks for the support, sir. As mentioned, thanks to Ria again and Hedi, who's been a source of inspiration. Don't forget to check out the site warinangola.com for maps and background. If you'd like to contact me, you can do it through the site abwarpodcast.com or direct message me on Twitter at Des Latham. Until next, goodbye. Thank you.